Welcome to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. In this episode, I speak with Andrew Pickering, a scholar known for his work on scientific practices and knowledge production in books such as Constructing Quarks, A Sociological History of Particle Physics, The Mangle of Practice, Time, Agency and Science, and The Cybernetic Brain, Sketches of Another Future. In his work, he explores ways of knowing and acting in and with the world, what he calls dances of agency between human and non-human agents. In the book he is now finishing, he develops a distinction made by Martin Heidegger between a logic and framing, which is based upon control and domination and denying the agency of the world around us, with a logic of poesis, which is based on not knowing and not seeking control and suggests a more open, adaptive and experimental set of practices. Our conversation explores what Pickering is trying to do in studying these cases of poesis. Moving beyond critique and identifying practices of acting with a lively and surprising world. The more humble, modest and open perspective Pickering suggests is one I find stimulating and inspiring. And I think there's real value in more carefully looking in these practices what another future for our world could be. For more information, please check my Substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com, and make sure to subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series. I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Engaging with your work I found really helpful because I was really, really having a very kind of human and a rather limited conception understanding of agency. Uh, and so, yeah, one of the things um, I was interested in, in talking to you about was, yeah, the way that, the way that you think about agency. Actually, yeah, this, this might be a good way of, a good, good point to start. Um, could you maybe yeah talk talk a bit about how you have come to think about agency in the context of your work? Yeah, yeah. The, the important thing for me in talking about agency is to emphasise that we live, first of all, in a lively world. That the world doesn't sit there passively; it's continually doing things. Um, and we're plunged into that field of liveliness. And I'm interested in ways that we get along with the liveliness of the world. And I think the key second point for me about agency is that it's emergence. So the world isn't just lively and doing things. It can always surprise us. In that sense, um, you know, I think of the world as being unknowable. And you know, most of my work recently has been about how do you get along in a world um, that you're never going to kind of cognitively master. It will always surprise you. I'm interested in patterns of action and acting in the world. But um, recognise that we live in a um, uh, lively and surprising environment. 
So I think what I constantly struggle with is being sympathetic with the kind of perspective you're putting forward, mm. uh, especially in terms of uh, the unknowability uh, and also the way that um, the world also has agency. Um, but the way that seems to butt up against this constant desire and demand for control and this expectation of knowability. Um, and I, I really, I struggled to uh, understand why there is such a strong expectation of knowability. Um, and in, you know, I think in, in your work, you have this contrast between the kind of way of thinking about agency that you are interested in and then uh, a way of thinking about agency and also science, which is one very much around control and knowability and the idea that it's possible to um, predict and uh, deal with most foreseeable um, kind of scenarios. So maybe to what extent, I mean, in both your, both the cybernetics book and also the new book that you're working on, uh, you, you talk a lot about what you see as, as kind of modern science effectively working too well in a way or being, being too effective and in the process this maybe um, – limiting the way that we're seeing and engaging with the world? Um, mm. um, I mean, the, the, the history of the modern West is somehow um, entangled with the idea that the world is knowable and predictable and we can arrange things to suit ourselves. Um, and in a way... That works a lot of the time. We've achieved a kind of mastery of the world uh, that reflects that kind of understanding back to us. Um, we, we try to mould the world to suit our purposes, and usually that works. Uh, the thing to remember is that <laughs> it doesn't always work. Sometimes it works and sometimes it, it fails. So even when we act as if the world is knowable and controllable, uh, it can and does still surprise us. So you mentioned the Fukushima nuclear reactors earlier. Um, we're, we're great at creating um, power from nuclear reactions. Um, because we're great at it, we assume that the world is the way we think of it as being knowable and controllable. Um, but then you know, the nuclear power station melts down, <laughs> there's radioactivity all over the place, emergence that I was just talking about, kind of bursts through. And this should remind us that we're not in control. 
So a, a dominant way of going on is what Heidegger calls enframing, treating the world as if it's our disposal. And this has, you know, structured the entire history of the West. But enframing has this kind of dark side, the kind of unintended consequences of our mastery that we didn't expect is always coming back to, to bite us, one could say. The Fukushima disaster is a single finite example of that kind of thing. The big example these days would be global warming, I think. But, you know, the grace of creating power and putting it to use. But without meaning to, we've also, you know, released enormous amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the planet's heating up, and it's turning into a massive disaster. So the question for me is, you know, could we get away from this enframing way of acting as though we're the masters of the universe? And, like, you know, many people have criticised philosophically the vision of the world as controllable and dominatable. Uh, and that's, that's very good. But what I'm trying to find in my work, which I guess most people don't think about, is the question, is there another pattern of acting in the world um, which would act in the presence of emergence and surprise and the lack of control? Can we find other ways of going on, getting on with the world? Yeah, I mean, as as you say, certainly there there has been this powerful critique of of the limit of of thinking about you know this this paradigm of of control. Also, thinking of um, you know Ulrich Beck's work on global risk yeah. society and how he was pointing to the the goods and the bads of modernization sort of coming together and it being impossible to entangle. Or sorry, disentangle, disentangle the the two sides. Uh, with Fukushima, it was interesting after the disaster when they were, uh, you know, doing all the investigations into into the uh, the accident. One of the big questions was whether or not that the risk had been foreseen or not. And this was really seen as, as a big issue, whether or not it had been predicted and then actually just not prepared for, or whether it was something which was completely unforeseen because they prepared for an earthquake and they prepared for a tsunami, but they hadn't prepared for these two things uh, happy, happening simultaneously. But, you know, in a way, the... The question, I mean, it's relevant in terms of liability perhaps, but on a larger scale, it didn't matter that much because the basic uh, issue was that when you have such a complex technology with so much uh, power and you uh, place that within the context of, of, a, of a world which we cannot completely control, there is the possibility of such such an outcome occurring um and it's yeah kind of an unavoidable um 
the unavoidable risk which comes with 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 with, uh, with that technology. Um, and you know, I think I really uh, became much more th- through that experience. Became much more conscious of the way. Also, I think socially, uh, we tend to not even necessarily reflect upon the ways that, uh, like the, the risks that we, we take as societies, but then also the way that we're, we're not even really thinking about the wider consequences of these societal patterns. And, and so there's, there's not even, I think, a question of could things be done differently because there's not even that sort of first that first step of how are things being done now right um we we kind of have this background assumption of uh the world is there for us i mean this connects to heidegger's you know way of in framing right that the world is there for us to use and exploit Mm. in terms of then thinking i get trying to think about a different way of, of, of acting in a world which is a, which you see as being alive and, and having agency. Um, is it, this is something where did you first start developing this uh, aspect of your thought where where were you starting to come to, to these set of ideas? Yeah. <clears throat> that, that goes back a long way. Yeah. Basically, to a book that I published in 1995 called The Mangle of Practice, subtitled Time, Agency, and Science. And in those days, I was looking at the history of science, the history of particle physics since World War II. And I was trying to understand what scientists actually do in their, their research practice. What's it like to you know, engage with? the world as, uh, as a physicist. And I, I, just, I, I concluded, you know, from my empirical studies, that we had to think about scientists as, as interacting with a lively world that they couldn't control that would always surprise them. And, you know, I did empirical studies. So, you know, one chap inventing the, the bubble chamber as a a new tool for particle physics, another study of Michael Morpurgo looking for evidence of free quarks. And, and I decided in both of those cases, they were discovering that the world acted in ways that surprised them and accommodating their own actions for that in a kind of back and forth process I called a dance of agency between the human beings and the material objects they were dealing with. Um, and, and, you know, after I wrote that book, it started to dawn on me that, you know, I wasn't just writing about physicists, that we're all engaged in these kind of dances of agency in a world that we can't control um, you know, all the time. But that's the condition of our, our being. That's the way we're entangled in the world. And I, I should have said maybe earlier on that my sense of agency has to do with performance, with doing things. We do things, 
the world does things, and these doings, these performances are engaged with one another. So I arrived at this picture actually from looking at modern science. And the strange thing then was that I realized I was talking about this kind of lively world that could always surprise us. But somehow the condition of doing science was to assume the opposite, that actually in the end, the world is knowable and controllable. And, and, and that then, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and made me start wondering, well, can we find other ways of going on that don't, as it were, conceal the liveliness of the world, but recognize its existence and somehow um, act accordingly? And then the question was, you know, what does acting accordingly look like? And I started coming across examples of that. Um, the big fascinating one that I found was this field called cybernetics. And the cyberneticians, you know, had all these you know, fascinating, strange and striking projects in the world, all of which were somehow predicated on the idea that the world is built from what one of my cyberneticians, Stafford Beer, called exceedingly complex systems, meaning systems we'll never fully know or understand. And the wonderful thing about cybernetics was that it wasn't paralyzed by this idea that we'll never fully understand the world. It found you know, concrete, real-world ways of going on in fields like you know, psychiatry, brain science, robotics, management, the arts, spirituality. Um, and I, I wrote a book about that, as you know, The Cybernetic Brain, which is a very long book, but I, <laughs> I still think it's great. It's not because of my writing, it's because of what I was writing about, these wonderful projects that these guys do. And the, um, the, the subtitle for that book, yeah. Sketches of Another Future, uh, this, this was something which really attracted me uh, to the book. And so was this sense of cybernetics perhaps offering a, a different way of thinking about um, of the future and a different way of perhaps how we can interact with the world? Was that something which kind of emerged from your going into their research or was that sort of a hunch which you were trying to pursue by learning more about them? <laughs> I don't know. I, I can remember sitting on a little train in the Bay Area of San Francisco and this phrase, sketches of another future, sudden, suddenly went through my mind. I thought that's, <laughs> that's a great phrase. <laughs> um, you know, the, the idea was that there's a kind of practical politics to all this, a politics of practices. That what I had discovered in cybernetics was a set of practices that A, look really strange. They were very different ways of acting in the world from the ones that I, I grew up with, that we teach our children. And B, had this kind of unifying, um, 
image of the world connecting them together, right? You know, these are practical ways of acting if you think you aren't controlled, if you recognize you're not one of the masters of the universe, how would you go on? And my first answer was cybernetics, but it doesn't have to be cybernetics. I mean, my, my new book that you mentioned is about ways of interacting with the environment, you know, water, rivers, floods, fire, etc., um, etc. What um, fascinates me is that there are ways, other ways of going. And these are my sketches of another future. Once you've got a hang of them, you can kind of extend them if you, if you put the effort into it to other examples that uh, nobody's thought of yet. And that's the other future. Um, yeah, I, re reading your work, I was uh, reminded of a, of a quote from Foucault towards the end of his life, which I'll read. He said, I would like to say something about the function of any diagnosis concerning what today is. It does not consist in a simple characterization of what we are, but instead, by following lines of fragility in the present, in managing to grasp why and how that which is might no longer be that which is. Right? And so this idea of fragility in the present and also, you know, especially for Foucault, turning to history as a way of um, identifying um, some of these 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 fragilities. I th this is what really struck me about uh, your work on cybernetics is is, is the way that you're, on one hand, pointing towards paths not taken, um, but then at the other, you know, but then also we can see in all these ways that actually uh, cybernetics have had these influences which have permeated through into, um, the, you know, practice decades later. Maybe just for... Um, people listening who don't know cybernetics well, could you maybe go through one or two examples uh, which sort of demonstrate this different way of thinking about uh, agency? I don't, I'm not sure which example to, um, to go through. So the, the basic idea of cybernetics is that the world is built out of exceedingly complex systems, systems that we'll never fully know and dominate. So in practice, the, the key feature of cybernetics is kind of an experimental attitude, trying things in the world, seeing what comes back, reacting to that. And all of the practical projects of cybernetics have this quality of trying things out, reacting to it, adapting to however the world is going to act. Um, you know, what one striking and controversial example that I talk about is a kind of radical psychiatry that used to be called anti-psychiatry in the 1960s. So we can 
contrast two approaches to dealing with the mad, people with mental problems. One is the kind of dominant and framing way of going on that we all know very well. Uh, basically, you give somebody some drugs to try and control their behaviour so they, they can act like normal people, like you and I, and they can you know, go to work and hold down a job and things like that. The, the idea of anti-psychiatry was, was very different. Um, the idea there was that the psychiatrists and the mad people, the disturbed people, would just live together and, and try and get along in whatever way was possible that would help the, the people who were suffering. And this took the form of a kind of performative back and forth. People would try and the psychiatrists would try and make contact with people who got schizophrenia and things like that, establish relations any way they could, which would include, you know, in the famous example of uh, Mary Barnes, you know, <laughs> playing rough games, pretending to be animals, a bit of punching and hitting, just trying to establish a kind of relationship on a performative level with people that would help them. So that, that, that's the contrast, kind of experimental getting along, in that case, with other people versus you know, giving them drugs to dominate them and turn them into something else in a kind of mechanical fashion. And, I mean, it's just listening to you, I... I'm just struck by how odd it is that we've ended up in a situation where um, you're contrasting an experimental approach against dominant ways of doing science. <laughs> and so um, the way that we now, you know, conduct, conduct, you know, experiments is so kind of rigid that an experimental approach is actually, or an experimental approach to, to knowledge building um, is is one which we now need to look to kind of alternate uh, traditions to to think through and, and yeah, develop. I mean, there are two, um, yeah. I mean, there so, are two senses sorry. of the word experiment. In a, in a classic scientific experiment, the aim is to end up in a position of dominate knowledge and domination. Right? It aims at a kind of final product a definitive solution of some problem. There's another sense of experiment, which is finding out, you know, just open-ended, you know, being in the world and seeing what happened. And that, that's the big contrast between, you know, modern sciences like physics and cybernetics. Cybernetics, you know, took the stance that we're continually finding out you know, what will happen in this situation and that, and trying to you know, learn from that and act accordingly, rather than creating this kind of dualistic, dominating split between obedient objects and machines you know, and obedient people on the one side and uh, the masters on the other side. I mean, I, I get a sense that in your work on on one level you're suggesting that this way of thinking about 
you know, dominating nature is 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 not accurate. This doesn't capture the way that the world does have agency and does does react. Um, but on another level, that it is kind of normatively problematic. It's it's not simply futile. It is it is also not something we should be aspiring and acting with the world rather than over or against it is is a more preferable uh, way of engaging. Would would that be a, a fair? Uh, way of putting it. <laughs> Except that it's putting the, the emphasis in the wrong place. You know, I mean, a million people have argued and still argue. You know, it's probably the, the dominant position in philosophy these days, at least interestingly, interesting philosophy, that the world is a lively place that we can't dominate. You can make that argument philosophically, from all sorts of angles. Um, if I've got anything to contribute, it's not so much, you know, my version of that argument. It's seeing that there's actually a different pattern of acting in the world that goes with this vision of the liveliness of the world. And I, I don't know. I mean, you know, not many people seem to see that there's this constructive alternative to go around in a dominating fashion. So what I'm trying to bring to life is the idea that there's another way of acting that goes with you know, this philosophical critique. Right? And the only way I know of doing that is to point to examples and say, look, you know, A, this is an interesting way of going on, and B, it exemplifies a different pattern of action. So I'm, I'm really interested in these patterns of action. And maybe we don't need to rehearse the philosophical argument all the time. It, it's just that, you know, I mean, if, if you read philosophy, you know, the new materialism, things like that, um, it's obsessed with the, the ontological argument. And it has you know, almost no sense that actually we could act differently. The emphasis is always we need to think differently. You know, thinking differently is dead easy. You know, anybody could. But, you know, to find a way of acting that out um, is very hard. And so can you talk about one or two of the examples that you explore in the yes, new book? Yes, So here, here's a... Very simple example from the book. Um, I'll just read you a quote. It's from Jim Scott's book, Seeing Like a State. And he's talking about a traditional Japanese approach to dealing with soil erosion. Very down, down to earth, literally. And he says this, erosion control in Japan is like a game of chess. The forest engineer after studying his eroding valley, makes his first move, locating and building one or more check dams. He waits to see what nature's response is. This determines the forest engineer's next move 
which may be another dam or two, an increase in the former dam or the construction of side retaining walls. Another pause for observation. The next move is made and so on until erosion is checkmated. That's a bit over the top. The operations of natural forces, such as sedimentation and vegetation, are guided and used to the best advantage to keep down costs and to obtain practical results. This is a beautiful example of what I'm talking about. So the forest engineer doesn't think through what needs to be done. He doesn't calculate it scientifically or anything like that. He tries things and find out, finds out what's coming back and reacts to that in precisely what I call a dance of agency. You build a dam, you go away for a year, you come back, you see what's happened, you react to that, you go away for another year. And after a few years, Scott says nature is checkmated. That, that's too simple. But this kind of back and forth way of engaging with the world is a kind of beautiful example of uh, being interested in the world, being close to it, not adopting a dominating stance, engaging with it. Um, and that's the kind of blueprint for a lot of the examples I've looked at. It's the blueprint for anti-psychiatry, actually, that example I just discussed. All of the other examples I talk about in cybernetics and the kind of examples I talk about in the new book. So, uh, you know, following on from a little chapter about that quote, I talk about ways of trying to restore the ecosystem of the Colorado River as it runs through the Grand Canyon by staging experimental floods on the river, letting water flow through the Grand Canyon Dam, see what happens, react to that, and finding a way of getting along with the river, which maintains this otherwise degrading uh, ecosystem below the dam. I think that's a, you know, an example of a different paradigm in interacting with the world from you know, calculating how you're going to build a dam, control water, and generate power. And it's, it's the contrast between these two practical paradigms the kind of practical politics that implies that um, I'm really interested. Mm, I, I, and it's it's interesting that a lot of the examples you point towards are in some ways returning to uh, earlier practices. So. Uh, one listening to the way you're framing it the, what was really sticking in my mind is the experience of the last few years with the pandemic where I think collectively we have shown such an inability to live with not knowing and not being in a situation of, of control or being able to 
um, forecast accurately what is happening has been incredibly difficult for us collectively. Like our societies are very much built around expectations that, uh, you know, outcomes can be forecast and things can be controlled for. And the, the, the kind of um, practices that uh, you're, you're interested in um, strike me very much uh, like not to, to, to be cutting very much against the dominant direction of, of the way people uh, are interacting and thinking about uh, the, the world at the moment and, and the desire to control uh, the, the virus, I think, in a way, it's a perfect example of your dance of agency yeah. because the virus is constantly, uh, you know, responding and mutating and, and so on. Um, but, it, but it also, I think, points towards the challenges with getting people to think differently because there's been this constant refusal to... Um, accept the dance in um, a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that the word you need is refusal. Um, mm. I'm, I'm not sure it's even accurate to say that people, you know, want control. I, I think, you know, the way we teach our children and the way that I was taught and probably you were taught, um, doesn't confront you with any options. So when I first read Heidegger, his famous essay, The Question Concerning Technology, which is the, the key thing here, which was about um, 40 years ago now, in my case, right? I thought, you know, why is, why is Heidegger droning on about and framing this strange German world. Of course, we enframe the world. Of course, we try to dominate it. Of course, science is integral to that. How else could we go on? And I remember you know, sitting in a seminar at MIT saying, <laughs> why is he bothering to tell us this? Right? Um, and I, I was saying that because I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine any other way of going on, right? And I could see it at, at the end of this essay. Heidegger talked about this, some other thing that he called poesis, right? Which wasn't then framing, but, you know, it, it was evident in that essay that Heidegger hadn't got anything very <laughs> clear to say about what poesis was. He was harking back to the arts of ancient Greece, which didn't help me or anybody else in that room in, in any concrete fashion to think what poesis was. So it's just, you know, the, the lack of an alternative keeps us doing the same things over and over again. You know, we build the next nuclear power station, we drill for oil two miles below the surface of the Gulf of Mexico, and we think, well, that's the kind of thing we do, you know, 
And they were surprised, you know, that this power station was, was melted down. And, and that's just a bit of bad luck. That's the way we treat it. It's like, no, you know, that's kind of noise in the background. It's a disaster and, you know, <laughs> storms, wildfires, floods, and <laughs> devastating the earth. But that's just a bit of bad luck. Uh, it's not a bit of bad luck. It's the way the world is. But to see that <laughs> we don't have to keep repeating the same mistake is very difficult. Uh, and, you know, you have to think about uh, the way we educate our children, including students, you know, up to and beyond the level of PhDs. We educate people into end frame. And, of course, like I said at the beginning, it, it kind of works. You know, this, this office I'm sitting in is being much the same for, yeah, since this building was put out 60 years ago. It does protect me from the weather. Um, so the built world, in a way, reflects back to us this kind of attitude of mastery. So part of the difficulty is imagining your way out of that going on in the world, which, you know, to repeat myself, is what I'm trying to conjure up, this possibility of other ways of going on. And the idea is, you know, <laughs> the desperate political hope is if enough people saw that, then collectively we would start finding other ways to live on this planet. Yeah, I mean, I think there does need to be this process of, of, of realisation. I mean, I'm really struck retrospectively by my lack of curiosity. <laughs> about energy <laughs> and you know it really was the experience of of the fukushima nuclear disaster which forced me to think about all of these things which i've just completely taken yeah. taken for granted uh and so not 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 even a, a kind of a i'm aware of this and i'm choosing not to you know, act differently, simply not not thinking about, well, where does the energy that I use come from? What are the consequences of that? And uh, what what are the potential uh, alternatives or what could the, the potential alternatives be? And uh, one of the framings which I found really helpful when I started trying to make sense of the disaster was... Charles Perrault's framing of, yeah. of, of normal accidents. You know, he says, "Well, this this is what's going to happen <laughs> when you get a really when you get a really complex technology, and you get a world that you cannot fully control or know. Sooner or later, something will break or blow up. That's the, and if it if what breaks or blows up is is uh, very powerful or very dangerous, well, then the outcome might yeah, be very you know, bad. It, it doesn't have to break, actually. I mean, you know, nuclear power station breakdown, but actually, you know, coal-fired power stations work really well. It's just that they also do something else. They generate power, and when you weren't, when you weren't looking, they're filling the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. So, so there's this kind of performative excess. You know, the danger isn't just 
power stations melting down. It's other things happening that you haven't thought of. You know, the, the classic example from the old days mm. is Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, you know, at the start of the environmental movement. DDT really is really great, killing insects. It's just killing everything else, else at the same time. We didn't think of that. It's so-called unintended consequence. And the point of talking about emergence is that unintended consequences of what you should expect. We never do. We always act surprised. But it's, you know, it's not because the engineers are no good and they're not doing their job properly or the chemists aren't doing their job it's that the world is always going to surprise you know, them and us. And there's, a, well, there's also a question of scale. The more we work on the world, the bigger the surprises are liable to be, which means that the bigger the catastrophe are liable to be. So a big nuclear power station melting down is a much bigger disaster than you know, a little oil fire power station or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think also there's this sense. I think this this idea of scale is is really important, both in terms of yeah, as as the scale gets bigger and bigger, well, then the 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 risk of the scope of the possible accident gets greater and greater. Uh, what's what's the expression? Yeah, you know, I, I falling height is Wolfgang Schibelbusch, a very interesting kind of independent writer. And he wrote this wonderful book called The Railway Journey about the development of the railways in the 19th century. And he points out that, you know, railway accidents were by far the biggest, you know, accidents that had ever been seen in the history of the world just because of all the energy that's bound up in a speeding train. And the English translation of this is the falling it's falling. Height. He says, you know, the falling height of these disasters is much bigger than anything that went before. It's it's a bad translation. I mean, then falling height is potential energy. If you remember your schoolboy physics, it's actually kinetic energy in the case of a railway accident. The motion of the the thing. But (laughs) I like this word falling height. the falling high technological disasters just get bigger. Yeah, I mean, it, it captures this this kind of uh, increase in, in in scope and also the sense of this uh, problem getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, in, yeah. So I mean, scale. You know, I mean, we've always controlled the world to some extent, but the idea would be that you know, shall we say, since World War Two, it's gone completely over the top, right? That's why all these environmental disasters have become apparent, you know, basically in my lifetime, in your lifetime. Been thinking mm. it just ripples yeah. on a vast system have now become you know, colossal effects. The, 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 the line, uh, you know, the, the widening gyre um, from, who is it? It's... Um, uh, Keith, I'm trying to remember my brain's not working. But talking about the widening gyro is also this idea that, you know, you don't go back to the centre, it just gets, starts getting, you know, wider and wider and 
and yeah. bigger and bigger. And I think what you know, with the, especially with also the increasingly clear consequences of uh, climate warming, there's um, you know I, I think it's kind of forcing people to also view these issues in a in, in a different way. I mean, I think maybe a decade ago there was kind of this hope or it's not really hope, but this strange kind of desire that maybe if we just get one big disaster, this will trigger a kind of change of thinking, which will lead to a different way of approaching the climate. Uh, whereas it seems so much of the responses to climate change are kind of a doubling down on the logic of of uh, in framing and of control. Yeah, I mean the other the other responses, you know, critique, resistance, protest. You know, let, let let's stop. <laughs> you know, let's block the XL pipeline. Because too much oil moving around already. Uh, I mean, I personally am in, all in favour of that, but I've got nothing much to add. I'm not an expert on protest. If I lie down in front of the next pipeline, it won't make much difference. Um, my contribution, such as it is, is to try and say, yeah, we, we need those negative things, but we need something positive, you know something constructive, how else could we do things? So we don't want to just kind of oppose, you know, this end framing. We don't want to kind of double it in, you know, in a kind of counter end frame. Can, is there another way of going on? I'm in danger of repeating myself again. That's my no, but I, but I think also what's interesting in terms of the examples you, you lay out with Poesis is that they kind of operate on, on different scales because something like mm. natural farming is something which can, you know, an individual person can do or it can, you know, be moved up to a collective level or you know, a state level and so on. Uh, some of the other examples you you, you give to do with um, damming, uh, perhaps more, um, you know, governmental level. And so it's kind of a mixture of scale range, ranging from micro to sort of the, the meso level, uh, which, is, which is perhaps I think provides a different kind of perspective to the tendency to either look purely at the macro or purely at the micro and get get a bit stuck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's true. Yeah. I agree. And, and then the other point, which I really noticed about the examples that, that you give, so uh, you turn to uh, natural farming in, in Japan. Uh, you also look at the um, the the way that uh, Aboriginal Australian or Native Australians um, uh, engaged with with the land and the practices of of, of uh, fire control and burning. Uh, 
a lot of so a lot of the examples you give are kind of I guess uh, non-Western cultures. And so, how much do you think there is a sense of needing to us? Like, how much is a sense of domination also caught within uh, Western traditions? <laughs> Because I'm not an expert on this, but I, I think you know the, the singularity of the modern West since you know at least the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution is this dualistic way of understanding the world. Human beings are agents; we're in control of a machine-like, knowable world. Um, I think that's that's you know, a very important and dominant thread in the history of the West, and I think we continually reproduce it. You know, I was in effect taught that from a very early age. So were my children. You know, so were my parents. Uh, that dominance of dualistic thinking isn't found in other periods. It's not so dominant in other periods or in other parts of the world. So, I mean, I I used to be, and I guess I still am, kind of fascinated by the alchemical tradition in the West. Alchemy is all about the coupling of, you know, the alchemist and the work, you know. On the one hand, the aim is to turn base matter into gold, at the same time, I'm trying to purify myself and, you know, become one with God or something like that. This kind of reciprocal, reciprocal non-dualist couple. Um, I, I, I can't resist looking for kind of non-dualist um, traditions outside the West. So in, in the new book, I talk a bit about uh, you know, traditional Chinese understandings of the world, the notion of Xi, which is not how you pronounce it, but the idea that precisely Xi is the propensity of things to act. And the tr traditional Chinese idea is good action is fitting yourself into the Xi of the situation. There's also this notion of Wu Wei not doing. Not doing isn't literally doing nothing, but it's certainly not. It's the antithesis of acting as if you're the master and you're in control. So if you're looking for kind of resources for understanding the world non-dualistically, um, it helps to go back into the, the past of the West or other philosophers. You know, people talk about Buddhism. I can't resist talking about animism in the book. Yeah. Animism is a direct recognition of the liveliness of the non-human world. Well, also with, with animism, I mean, I was reading your book, I was thinking about this in the context of the Shinto religion in Japan. So this is, the, the, so in Japan, you know, like uh, we have gods in trees and in forests and in rocks, and 
increasingly it makes sense to me. <laughs> I don't know how to, I, um, the, the more time I spend in, 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 in these forests and in the Japanese countryside, the more the, the belief that uh, gods or something like gods exist within them, it, it, somehow, mm. it somehow makes sense to me. Uh, and um, yeah, the engaging with your work, I've been really thinking about it in reference to, to being in, in Japan and on the one hand, recognizing uh, important aspects, especially within the, the culture and the tradition, which points point towards ways of living with the world and respecting the agency uh, of the world. But then at the same time, looking at modern Japan and seeing a country which is covered head to toe in, in concrete and following the Fukushima, you know, following the triple disasters in 2011, uh, the country has built up these concrete seawalls, um, which which w probably won't even actually work if there was another um, tsunami of, of the same scope as, as what happened in 2011. And and you know this is the mo this very much fits into the kind of inframing uh, paradigm. And, and so I'm very, very conscious that uh, these, you know, this, this kind of inframing paradigm is one, regardless of whether it emerged from Western sources, is certainly compatible and has appeared or uh, reappeared uh, in many other parts of the world and is and is is very very prominent in obviously uh, Japan yeah. also China is China as well but I, I I wonder whether it's perhaps also the extent to which um, traditional sources are protected or kind of nurtured that there is still enough of these. Uh, historical lineage which people can see and appreciate which makes it easier to think about what alternative ways of living with the world could be uh, you know in, in Australia you don't see that previous way of, of living that was there before the settlers you know it's pretty much wiped out from Australia's cultural imaginary. Uh, obviously in Japan you have a very, very different relationship with its history. Um, but there are lots of little reminders, especially with um, Shinto traditions and, and all the Shinto shrines, which mm, yeah, point to a different way of, of thinking and engaging in the world and one which it reminds us of, of, of the liveliness of, of, of the world that, that yeah, we're part yeah. of. I mean, I, 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 
going back to my work in the history of particle physics, I, I think of, you know, different paradigms as kind of coexisting, but very often one is dominant, dominant and the other is pushed to the margins, right? And I think that goes with this kind of enframing and poesis contra. But what I saw in the history of particle physics is that, you know, things can change, that um, this paradigm can move in from the margins towards the centre and the dominant one can recede a bit. Uh, you know, in, in the history of the West, the 60s were a period when, you know, this attitude of mastery and knowing everything temporarily moved to the margins and, you know, the same kind of experimentalism came to the, came to the fore. Uh, and that, that's true everywhere. So, I mean, probably in Japan, you know, of course, you know, the scientific engineering paradigm is dominant. I mean, I, I can remember traveling from Tokyo to Kyoto on a bullet train thinking, I'm going to see some Japanese countryside, and I didn't see any. I mean, it was amazing, you know. I don't know how far it is, 100 miles or something, and it's all built up, dominated, depressing. But there are these other traditions in Japan, like you mentioned, Shinto. And, and then the question isn't, you know, to go back to some pure form of Shinto, say. it's to think how that can be put to work and developed in, in the world today. And the, the trouble with these kind of ancient philosophies, like, you know, Shinto and Taoism and things like that, is um, it's not clear how they connect to practical action in the world. So I talk about this guy, Masanobu Fukuoka, in Japan, inventing his form of natural farming. But he, he had to invent it, you know. He, he, he evidently knows a lot of, about Buddhism, but there is no established Buddhist way of farming. You have to figure out how to bring these philosophies down to earth, so to speak. But I mean, there are, I think there are practices which then do translate them, uh, whether it's, it's Shojin Yori, which is the, the um, vegetarian food that, that the monks will, will eat or, uh, I, I spend a, a lot of time in, in mm. Japanese gardens and yeah. in temple gardens, uh, and that those, for me, are really a very powerful way of of expressing the dance of agency that you're talking about. I mean, I, I, I often feel when you talk about the dance of dance of agency, you're, you're making it sound <laughs> much more beautiful than it than it perhaps is. And I feel I, maybe it feels more like a uh, a tussle or a push and pull. Uh, but you know, where it is, you know, when I think about Japanese gardens, this are actually somewhere where I do think it is, it is really, uh, you know, a beautiful choreography because you have this uh, interaction where the gardener is, is shaping the environment, mm. but it is not dominating it. Um, but then also I think one thing which is quite powerful there, and I think this is also 
maybe implicit in in your work is 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 you're talking about these um, practices which you know maybe non-modern or pre-modern or perhaps go back to previous um, moments in time. But I would say I think these are also practices which maybe work with different time scales. So the way the kind of the time frame they're dealing with are ones which are much longer. And so whether it's you know the the way that Aboriginals would think about uh, think about the the land and and their mm. life within it. Uh, or, or, you know, again, thinking about Japanese gardens, you know, these are uh, constructed with, you know, hundreds of years in, in, in mind. So the, the scale, the time mm. scale that people are thinking about are ones which are very different to uh, a kind of a short-term immediate uh, kind of response, which also connects to this idea that you're talking about with the experimentation because for experimentation you also need patience mm. you need to be able to allow to have this period of because the thing is with experimenting it might not work and so with the natural farming example i think you talk about the way yeah, like yeah. he fails for quite a while yeah, some of his orchards die because <laughs> he just leaves them alone to see what will happen. Uh, I mean, that, that. And so, yeah, I think this this points to a different way of thinking about yeah, timescales, which that's I think very is, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so point of contrast, um, the idea that we're masters of the universe goes with this kind of short-term Western thinking. You know, maybe five years ahead, we had a flood here, so we'll just make the levy higher. Um, and it's only over the long term that you discover you've shifted the problem somewhere else and the floods have got bigger, but nobody's thinking on that time scale. So we're always surprised and we think, oh, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers has screwed up again. You know, why can't they do things properly? Whereas if you look at the long time scale, um, it's obvious that emergence is going to burst out somewhere and we can't, we're not dominating the world. To go back to something you said a minute ago, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I guess the dance of agency is a kind of romantic phrase, but it's not necessarily a romantic thing. You know, the Fukushima nuclear reactor melting down is a very big move and an ongoing dance of agency. The Mississippi River flooding was a very big thing. The question for me is, we're, we're all stuck in dances of agency, whether we like it or not. It's the condition of our being. It's the, the question of how do we conduct them? How, how do we behave ourselves? We take a short-term perspective of domination or maybe a longer-term perspective going on. And the other thing that what you just said reminded me of is, you know, I love Japanese gardens and you're so lucky being able to go to them where you live. I love bonsai. There's something very interesting about the Eastern artistic traditions, if I'm allowed to call them that, which don't speak of you know, domination. The opposite of a Japanese garden is the gardens of Versailles, where all the, <laughs> all the trees are... <laughs> 
geometric shapes, there's spheres and pyramids and things like that. Um, the one speaks of getting along with nature, the other speaks of you know, imperial, royal domination. That was my conversation with Andrew Pickering, recorded in March 2022. It has been produced with the support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hosen. Please subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series and make sure to check other conversations. For more information, see my website, christopherhobson.net, and my substack, imperfectnodes.substack.com. My email is info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson.